You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is a social entrepreneur and attorney who focuses on startup companies, nonprofit organizations, and arts and entertainment law issues. Creative Confidential starts now. This episode was recorded outside the studio, live on location. I'm sitting here today in near the Academy of Music in Philadelphia with the president of Opera Philadelphia, David Devan. David, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Um, one of the things that caught my eye about the organization was uh, it, it seems to project a very um, a very young image from a marketing standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think people incorrectly perceive that, that classical music or opera is for their parents or for mm-hmm. their for their grandparents. And it's something that at least... We like the parents, too. We like but the we, parents. But we like the whole family constellation. <laughs> right. Um, we, I know that one of the battles in the performing arts space, whether you're an executive or a board member or a, a supporter of, of those kinds of organizations, is that the audience tends to be somewhat narrow in terms of demographics mm-hmm. age-wise. And, and one of the battles is always growing the audience uh, towards you know, Generation X, Y, and, and Millennials. Right. How, does, how do you address that? Well, we addressed it um, right from the very beginning about what we are as a company, what we do artistically, um, and that you know, the simple matter is, is do we really want to be a one-channel company in a multi-channel universe, or are there opportunities to do different things for different folks um, that follow an artistic mission? And so, to put it simply, we've, over the last number of years have tried to move the company from being uh, the Turner Classic movie channel of opera to being the HBO of opera. Um, And what that means is that we've looked at opportunities to um, expand uh, the genre, um, uh, to do new works, to do standard repertoire works, to put that in a blend to work in different theaters. And to put that in a blend that is attractive to the widest number of people possible. And it seems to be working. Uh, 27% of our single ticket buyers are uh, between the age of 25 and 34, for example, which is rather startling statistic. Yeah, that's miraculous. Um, And uh, and we've also learned a great deal of things about um, people's um, consumer uh, preferences. So we're not a marketing organization in the sense of, you know, Toyota and, you know, if you want a five-door car, we'll build it. Um, we are an artistically driven organization. Um, but it is important that we keep pace with people's preferences and mm-hmm. find a way for people to have an on-ramp into the artistic work. Um, and so, uh, for example, we have discovered, um, no surprise, that um, the subscription model is about what's important to the institution, not what's important to the Consumer, uh, consumers in the 21st century are the boss in every other thing they consume. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've looked at and we've looked at those consumption patterns, um, and this opening of this season starts to give you a little bit of an indication of where we are going. Um, and uh, we, uh, for example, this year we will open with three operas um, in uh, a very tight proximity uh, simultaneously across um, two weekends at the end of September with Puccini's Turned Out, a new production in the Academy of Music, a world premiere by Missy Mazzoli and Royce Vavrick, um, Breaking the Waves in the Perlman Theater, mm-hmm. and then at the Prince Theater we'll open um, Brett Bailey's Third World Bun Fight uh, production of a reimagined uh, Verdi's Macbeth. 
Um, and that is really a prelude to what will be our normal practice in 2017, where we will open our season across six venues in the city with seven opera offerings, over 28 performances, all within 12 days. So if you think about my uh, sort of other media analogy, the HBO, what we're really doing is creating the Sundance of Opera mm-hmm. Festival opportunity. Yep. And, and to keep pushing the media metaphor... Uh, farther, I mean, it's basically our Netflix card. We're creating um, binge-watching opportunities for uh, long-time opera buffs as well as for young people, and it conforms to how they want to plan their um, art consumption or media consumption. Um, and so, uh, and in that, there's standard rep work such as uh, Mozart's Magic Flute, um, all with a, a, a new way of it being produced. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Koski's production from Berlin, um, as well as three world premieres. Um, so I think it's that blend, and if we don't change uh, the product, for lack of a, a, a better term, um, and in this 21st century, keep a wide um, sort of berth to that and offer different opportunities, I don't think you can grow the audience. There's so much packed into that answer that you just <laughs> The, uh, let's so to back up a bit. I know that uh, you know from my so I've been on uh, you know I sit on the board of directors of a regional orchestra for about nine years now. Great. And seeing the planning cycle unfold, where your your artistic committee is three years out, maybe two or three We're years five. out. We're four to five. Four yeah. to five. Um, and the the all of the energy and. Uh, momentum that needs to be created to get to your season opening weekend is one thing, but to basically triple your—I hate to call it output—but you know to triple your operational uh, demands on the organization. How are you? Uh, it will increase that by a factor of five the following fall. Yeah. And what, what was the? What came first? The the concept for the opera festival came first. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, it's it, it started with you, with the opera goer and potential opera goer, um, and we started looking. We have a very you know part of us as a company. We wanted to move from being the uh, you know the Turner Classic Movie Channel to being the HBO of opera, mm-hmm. and so what that meant was is that we needed to be innovative in everything that we did, whether or not it was an doing La Traviata or doing a, a, a new work like Cold Mountain, which we uh, premiered in February. Um, and, uh, and and as we were going through that, we looked at our practice and said, what about if we were to put all of our innovative practice together in a cluster? Um, but it was all born by market research. Um, we did um, a, we have a three-year, we've been doing market research deep, deep um, uh, proprietary market research for the last three years. Um, and so we know what our various consumer segments want, how they buy. We know how they buy all other media. We know how much money they want to spend. We know what their preferences are. Mm-hmm. Um, we know what their what how they what on ramps they need to sort of become interested in something, and all that came together with this idea of creating a dense urban opera festival where you can come and touch the future of opera. 
and you can do that on a wide range of aesthetic experiences with standard rep um, new work but all with a freshness and a vitality to it so it's all being produced in the 21st century and I think that's what our brand represents I think that's when you see our whether it's our website or our logo or how we um, uh, demonstrate our artistic uh, verve with mm-hmm. the things that we are doing that there's that energy there which people really see a lot and comment on but it's because it's our it that's what lives in our curatorial wheelhouse and that's where we're curating things so so what happened was is that we read research mm-hmm. and we found a way to marry that with our curatorial instincts um, and that we want to be of this century um, honoring the past in history but when you walk into a space where we are producing sometimes a theater sometimes a warehouse sometimes an art gallery um, that there's a sense that you um, that this is of this moment it is of this people it is of us Um, you know we believe that opera lives in everybody and our job is to let you access that joy of singing Um, And we're all going to be different. And so just only producing operas in romantically scaled large opera house. And that's, it's just like, it's as ridiculous as expecting a media company to be, have one channel. NBC doesn't have one channel anymore, right? They proliferate. Um, And so um, we, the, the, the festival idea has been a way for us to sort of catalyze that together in one um, kind of giant artistic experience. Um, and it and it looks all the research seems to indicate that the long uh, serving opera person is very interested in new experiences um, and so they'll be attracted to it and it will also continue to grow um, and attract a, a, a youthful market um, and what I love when we do things like that is when you see um, ge- wide generations experiencing something together there's just something uh, Elemental um, mm-hmm. a- about community and and art coming together in that way, and everybody seeing other tribes in the <laughs> in, in the auditorium yeah. is there's something kind of exciting about that. The energy is a great word for um, kind of my reaction when I see. It comes through in all of your materials, whether it's the website, whether it's your printed materials or logo design or how um, how you're positioning the festival. I, you know, people, at least it seems to me, your average person thinks of opera as, you know, something that yeah. really is a product of the 1800s. Yes. Or, or, or earlier. Or earlier. <laughs> and for it to be relevant in 2016 is not something that you can create in one year or how how did this sort of youthful um you know contemporary model take shape over the last several years when did it start in your estimation it started really to take shape about five years ago and we really decided that um, we needed to change the DNA of the institution so it really started when we made a commitment to um, having a composer in residence program 
and we have the largest composer in residence program for opera in the world. Um, and we've been very thankful that Andrew Mellon Foundation out of New York has um, underwritten this program for the last six years, mm-hmm. or just we're going into year six. And so at any one time, we have three composers in residence, each for three years. So it started by changing... Oh, and we also hired a new works administrator to work alongside an artistic administrator in the music department. So we really sort of tackled it as like, if, if the world is changing, we need to change from within. Mm-hmm. And we need to um, uh, change our, our own ecology. So it started there, and then it started us also when we started the chamber work series at the Perlman about six years ago as okay. well. Um, and we started doing contemporary work. Um, we did Henza's Phaedra. Um, we've done Powder Her Face. Um, but Thomas, that's a really sort of um, leading uh, contemporary work. Um, sometimes very challenging, but we made it elective. We didn't force anyone to go to it. It's a 550 seat theater. It's a block away from the 2200 seat Academy of Music. Right. Um, and it sold out. And all of a sudden, the cool place to be um, was, well, the cool place. Um, so we had a new product stream in chamber work. We had composers in residence. And that started igniting everybody internally. The marketing department started changing. The development department started changing. Because guess what? The donors were changing um, mm-hmm. for what their tastes were. Um, one of the best um, moments early on was um, I was outside the Perlman, and we'd just done Henza's um, Phaedra. It's one of the most challenging pieces ever written musically. Tough, tough, tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was standing at the end, and this woman, mid to late 80s in a walker, started coming towards me. And I was like, so I started, you know, rooting my feet in the ground. I was like, okay, here it comes. <laughs> it comes to- here it comes. Yeah. And she took her hands off her where she held my hands and she looked up at me and she cried. And she said, I didn't think there were any other new experiences left for me in this world. And I want to thank you for providing it for me today. It's a pretty good day. And that's in that moment, in that crystallized moment, you know, that's kind of everything you need to know about not making assumptions about people, mm-hmm. about um, expanding um, artistic expression, but not forcing people to it, letting someone like this woman come to it in her own time. Um, and, and, and that, I think, all those sorts of things are the chemistry that change the DNA of a company so that it's not just you know, the general director and president that's got an energy about this, but it's everybody in the mm-hmm. institution. It's our board of directors. Three years ago, our board of directors, I put a draft of our strategic plan to alter it slightly, and they literally, our chairman slid it across the table and said, I don't think this is daring enough. Can you go back and tell us what you really think? Um, so, and that that's all born out of... Um, us um, uh, knowing and wanting to invest in change, real change. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think a lot of classical organizations, the way I, I sort of think of it is that everyone's sitting there with just like amazing high end amplification system, and they're all, and people are sitting around with the dials and they're turning the dial and they're like, we're changing, we're changing, we're changing. And we're like, except 
that Morant's receiver is not plugged into anything and no one's listening. <laughs> Change is actually pushing it off the table, right. um, letting it crash to the ground and figuring out what is attached to it. Did you find that your your board composition from five years ago to today is... Is it materially different than it was five years ago? It's materially different than it was ten years ago. Um, Because we started really in earnest five years ago. So Mm -hmm. we had, there was obviously a ramp up time. So I was made general director and president five years ago. But before that, I was the managing director and I was initiating a lot of changes leading up to, because we all knew I was going to be the general director. It was part of a a succession plan. Sure, sure. Um, So, um, and so we radically changed. The board went from 62 to 32. Um, uh, they are... 62. Boy, yeah, it's, it's a big arts it's organization yeah, it's, board. It's, but, but it wasn't... You're yeah, right. It wasn't an effective... Unrelated. It wasn't an effective group of trustees and governors. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the board has been in lockstep with us in this in, in, in this exploration. They've underwritten... You know, our, our chairman underwrote the, the Perlman series to launch the chairman thing for, like, four years <laughs> um, to get it to get it started, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've had, we just finished a big working capital campaign for our our festival 017 and 018 and beyond, and we've had, you know, three directors put in a million dollars into that fund. Um, so, they, they're, they're, and, but it's not a donor club, it's, it's a group of trustees sure. that really want to transform the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, just even, you look at the risk tolerance of a board, it's, it's unrecognizable to what it would have been seven years ago um, you know it helps that we've you know balanced the budget we've got a good balance sheet <laughs> and we've had you know since the recession we, we we've um, we use that as an opportunity to rethink the organization and we've had some very strong performance um, both in terms of demographics as well as financial results um, we just closed this year with um, a, a, another um, healthy surplus um, our board for example has we have mandated surplus budgets so my job's not to break even uh, I get a surplus target every year that we have to um, build a budget to. Right. Well, do you, here's a question from the standpoint of, uh, speaking of balance sheets, uh, mm-hmm. not to go too inside baseball. I have a finance manager. We can go as <laughs> okay. deep as you want to go. <laughs> um, so you, the company performs at the Academy of Music and elsewhere. Yeah, two principal homes, um, okay. which is about to, you know, explode. Right. Um, but um, we have um, opera at the Academy, and we have opera at the Perlman okay. uh, Theater, and those are our two. Those are our two um, stationary homes. And and those are those are lease arrangements with the Kimmel Center. So you're not. We don't own anything. That's intentionally. The way, yeah, I mean that's really the way to go because you don't inherit. Um, we've we've. we've Invested yeah. heavily in making sure we have as much variable costs as possible, and we mm-hmm. try to eliminate fixed costs wherever possible. Yeah, that's uh, staying staying light is uh, is definitely the way way to go. Um, so the we're spending more money. Don't get us wrong; right. it's not like a budget cut, but we're able to be more adaptable because mm-hmm. we have a flexible system, which is, I mean, just the way you're going to have to be. <laughs> well, a, being nimble is. Everything. Yeah. I, I think. I mean, with with some organizations that own a hall, 
you know, they'd own their own performance venue. Um, Those are some serious fixed expenses. Yeah, I mean, it's also a big asset. But if it's only an asset, if you can sell it or or make it work for you, (laughs) exactly right. It could be a liability. So the great thing for for Opera Philadelphia is you don't have the issue of okay, the roof just caved in. We need. You know, yeah, someone else's five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, now it also it also what it does um, for us from a curatorial point of view is it gives us license to go elsewhere because if you own something, it's like your house, right? Um, right. Uh, the more equity you have in it, do you know what I mean? The, <laughs> you you have to spend more time there. You think um, so. Uh, it's allowed us to explore things. So you know, we opened this past season in a warehouse. Um, an abandoned warehouse in Kensington um, attached to an industrial uh, sculptor's studio uh, with Andy up opera, which was a devised opera with the bearded ladies. That actually opened, technically opened our season because it opened before La Traviata, uh, two weeks before. Sold out. We had to have performances. You couldn't get tickets. It was part of the Fringe Festival. But you, uh, like, if you don't own the opera house, you have the ability to think like that. Right. Um, and 54% of the people who came had never been to an Opera Philadelphia event ever before, and they were all millennials. That's awesome. I mean, the, the ability to drastically change the presentation, you know, the circumstances, whether it's a warehouse or a 500-seat theater or, you know, for people that um, aren't familiar with, with Philadelphia, you know, the, the Academy of Music is where the Philadelphia Orchestra uh, used to play. They have a new home now. But it's very much a very traditionalist, old It's modeled school. after La Scala. I mean, it looks, yeah. it's like La Scala of the, the West. It's, it's, it's about as old world as you can get. It's the oldest opera house in North America, period. There you go. So the ability to take this company out of the Academy of Music and put them in a warehouse, um, what did that presentation look like from a staging Standpoint. How how did you how did you tackle that? It took three years in development. It was devised opera, so that's following devised theater methodologies, where um, all the performers are part of the creation process, and it happens in an organic, developed way through time. People spent together, studio time. So um, what it looked like is it had twelve opera singers, it had six cabaret singers. Um, it was um, the music uh, accompaniment was a four-piece rock band with a plugged-in viola. Um, it was um, completely sound engineered. Um, each person had three different mics, through, um, body mics throughout the show to create a different soundscape. It was um, had a huge multimedia package. There was no fourth wall. The performers performed with the audience. Um, uh, there was um, nudity, profanity, um, all things that would have happened in Andy Warhol's studio because the whole thing was created to feel like you were in the factory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so there was nothing precious about it. I mean... <laughs> I walked through the audience with a Tupperware container of Spike Punch and Dixie Cups offering people um, alcohol before it started because it would make it a better experience. Um, that's everything how, you need to know about. How how, many, how, and how many did you draw for that for that performance? Uh, so the, the, we were capped at two fifty a night, and we did and we did ten performances, and we could have done more, but we ran out. We didn't have the performers for any more because we were sold out, um, and we started with I think six performances or eight performances and then we added to ten um, and then we had a cap 
which just we couldn't, but we could have kept going. A sold out runs always a good is always a good thing. Yeah. And now, do you have any? So, will that presentation model? Resurface in the festival, or yeah. So, for example, we've got a we're we have a new piece we're developing with the Barnes uh, Foundation. So mm-hmm. it'll be in the Barnes collection. Um, it will interface with the collection, um, and it's a new piece that's co-developed, co-commissioned with the Barnes. Um, that will be unlike anything else you've experienced. We also have a double bill at the Philadelphia Museum of Art War Stories. It's a month of Verity, um, along with a new work uh, companion piece by Lembit Beecher, one of our composers in residence. It's about a woman Iraq vet. Um, uh, we uh, will um, have a world premiere at the Perlman. Um, we are also co-commissioning a work with the Apollo Theater in New York um, by um, Daniel Bernard Romain, Bill, uh, Mark Bamudi Joseph, and Bill T. Jones, an African-American inspired place called, a piece called We Shall Not Be Moved. That will be in the Wilma Theater um, okay. and incorporates spoken word um, uh, traditions and um, operatic uh, expression um, and um, sampling and sound music files and all that sort of stuff so yeah um, we'll just keep it coming Um, and that's going to be tethered together with the magic flute um, Mm -hmm. in the academy which is um, the Komiche production by Barry Kosky which is the most sought after production of um, it's a magic flute in the world um, and we have it on East Coast premiere exclusive do you find that, you know, one thing that you see surface once in a while, this is a little bit off topic, but with with the sort of anecdotal, um, you know, sentiment that people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, do you find that long-form works need to be modified from a, I don't mean in terms, I don't mean scale necessarily, but in terms of duration, do you find that that's a pressure that is on your radar screen, or do you... No, I think not? it's... I mean, we, many, much of the new work we do is shorter, but it's not necessarily because of attention spans. It's just by the nature of the work. They tend to... A lot of the new work tends to have... It's, it's pretty deep stuff, and sometimes it's very muscular, and there's only so much of it, do you know what I mean, that mm-hmm. you, you can have. So... Um, uh, and I disagree with people's attention spans um, shrinking. I just there's no evidence that that is the case when it comes to media consumption. So people will binge watch a show for eight hours. That's a better way to look at it. Regularly. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the length of movies, have expanded. Your average movie now is over two hours. Most of them, you know, Star Trek. Or um, Star Wars, so forgive me, Star uh, Star Trek people. Uh, Star Wars, you know, uh, uh, the, the last one was uh, two hours. It was two hours and sixteen minutes. Um, people don't want to be bored, right? That's what's changed, and they have zero tolerance for being bored. When it's good, and and they're captivated, all the evidence suggests is. They'll hang out as long as you can keep them there. It's on us. When we're dialing in some rented sort of Carmen from 1982 um, and we haven't gotten the absolute best artists at the height of their um, artistry in it, we dial anything in, guess what? People are bored. Right. So I don't think it's about duration necessarily I mean Andy Apopper was two hours and 20 minutes um, 
it was with alcohol, so maybe it seems faster. Who knows? Um, but, you know, people didn't leave. Right. Um, uh, then we've done some works um, that have been, you know, 45 minutes. It all depends on the piece um, and what the artistic intention of it is. But the answer is, is when people say, oh, it has to be shorter, I don't, I don't want to be here that long, they're literally telling you, you're boring me out of my mind. So proving the old rule that if you if you put something compelling in front of people they will they will show up. But it has to be not compelling to six opera guys sitting in some corner talking about how great it is. It has to be like compelling in a broader sense. Right. And you sort of like the other thing we've learned is that um, you know, pricing isn't necessarily a problem. Um, and certainly within younger demographics, pricing is not a problem. Um, value is a problem. Um, okay. So, you know, 24-year-olds will drop $250 at a heartbeat for bottle service at a cool bar. They'll spend $200 for a rock act. They'll spend huge amounts of money to... You name it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, they'll pay $350 for Nike shoes without missing a heartbeat. So, so when they're not willing to pay this price, they don't see the value in what we're doing. So that's on us. And discounting is not going to change the value proposition until we make the price so low that we've just made it a commodity versus something with any any value. So it's on us. We need to develop something that is of high value but honors our... Don't dumb it down. We found that if you smart things up, that's a better way to go. Mm -hmm. So for us, we've... We've done a lot of introspection because of all this thinking about, well, what is opera? Like, what will we produce and what won't we produce? So you'll notice you never see musicals. There's a big, you know, trend in our industry to, mm -hmm. you know, Sound of Music, The King and I, Broadway, Sweeney Todd, blah, 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 you name it, right? Right. Um, You'll, you don't see that in our schedule because for us, we think that opera is defined by two variables. One, um, the music um, has to serve dramaturgical purpose. Another way to say that is, is the music has to actually have dramatic responsibility. Um, two, it, um, it has to use the classically trained voice. Um, and the reason we say that is we believe opera works when it allows mere mortals like you and me to touch the virtuosity of performance. And that comes from this highly trained mm -hmm. instrument, the voice. So if it requires operatic expression and uh, through um, uh, heightened classical training, and if the music is a drama the dramaturgical force, that's opera for us. We don't talk about acoustic. We don't talk about electronic. We don't talk about scale. We don't talk about length. We don't talk about... But those are the two th things. So, and, and, and out of that comes a smarting up of the activity. There's nothing buried in those definitions that suggest dumbing anything down. Now, that's such, a, that's such an intellectual um, you know, formulation of what the company does... How do you communicate that to somebody 
you know, to somebody on the street right. in thirty hire seconds. Really good branding and marketing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, one thing that uh, well, no, seriously, yeah, like what happens yeah. is, is like our marketing department and our communications firm and our PR agency, all those people, they sit around a table and we talk about this stuff and we talk about what this is saying, and then it's their job to figure out how to communicate that. Um, and I, as the, the president, need to give people permission um, to go where they think they need to go with it. Um, but they have to get excited about it, and they have to understand it at an at a intellectual and an emotional level. Um, um, so, you know, us wanting to create sort of, you know, a place where you touch the future of opera festivals is that's something that everybody owns so don't come in and show me an ad plan that looks like yesterday because it's gotta feel like I'm touching the future or something and still honoring a past but it, it has to have a vitality mm -hmm. um, and so um, you know I think Karma Agency has done a great job they've been our communications firm since we rebranded the company and they and their creative folks um, get inside what we were doing. Our marketing uh, team is second to none, um, and uh, and they play the magic decoder ring. Do you know what I mean between right. them and and the artistic it, planning team and 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 ultimately when you know all of those people are standing either in the warehouse uh, for Andy or opening night at La Traviata where Lisette or Pesa did her first Violetta and it was electric. Um, you know, they have to be charged about what's happening on stage, or they can't. The marketing's just going to be boring, right? No matter how good they are, they have to. They themselves have to be emotionally moved and on fire, and the synaptic functions in their brains need to be firing off at a crazy high <laughs> level. Um, so, where we after you know a, a wide ranging dialogue where it. Begins and ends is what we do on stage. It just and that is that is sort of the nut of it. Mm -hmm. um, and to do that, our, our so we've got rules. What we think opera is our curatorial practice is governed by another governing idea. Um, is that we want to excite artists and audiences in that order. So we don't. We believe if the artist is not truly excited, if the artist isn't doing the thing that most excites them, that they have to do, we have no hope of exciting the audience. So what we're we've done Very is true. tried to create an artist-centered environment, um, and that allows artistry to happen in sometimes surprising, sometimes profound ways. Um, and that excites the team. And then the team goes and does better work, and they, they plug into that energy, right? So Lisette doing her first Violetta had an excitement. It was electric. Um, and she did, it, was, it was amazing. Um, and so that's what excites everybody. And the fact that they went to Andy two nights before, and had this crazy device theater cabaret, whatever you couldn't even describe it as it, what the experience was, um, and 
if you're tethered to that, whether you're a marketing person, a fundraising person, or an artistic planning person with us, you can't help but be affected by it. So if I'm not curating that stuff, it's for the artist to have an energy and a vitality about what they're doing with us, mm-hmm. how can I do anything else? So that's my management technique is that I'll, I'm going to focus on it igniting that artistic activity and then everything else takes care of itself. You don't have to listen to me drone on. Seth and I have to listen to me drone on about stuff. They get there on their own. Right. That is not the um, that's not the message I always receive from from people though that I that I talk to. And a lot of it, you know, the other well I mean well you know how other people do things where it's very much a I don't want to say backward-looking technique, but, you know, well, what did we do it's reflect- last season? It's reflective versus um, progressive. See, this is why you're the president, because you're better <laughs> at, at spinning these things than I am. But, but it's you know, true, right? Where you have organizations that may look back, you know, over the last three seasons and go, okay, we did, uh, you know, we did this piece two years ago, yeah. or we're due to do that again. Right. Or, or, or into oh, we're having a huge conversation. You know. Huge conversation. I've been on planes like for a whole year over the work called Carmen, because you know at some point, yeah, we will have to produce Carmen. But are we going to dial it in? Are, you know, we just got back um, from the West Coast. I was seeing a production there. We looked at six productions. We just had a meeting this morning. We're like, we don't like any of them. And but and then we started talking about well, what do we want to happen with Carmen? And, you know, and I was saying, I think that our production needs to tell the story from her point of view, but a a woman of this century's point, 21st century point of view. So I'm not saying we have to set it today, we have to do it, but the, the point of view of the piece has to be from a strong, um, uh, woman um, of today and so well we can't find that in any other production so we're going to have to build a new one so let's start thinking about directors that we can have a dialogue with, with so that's do you know I mean and that's thinking about well which artist is this going to mm-hmm. resonate with right. what did they want um, and and we already and we already have the mezzo cast and we know and we've talked to her about it so it's up from the coming from the ground up so you can take even a new piece because there is some reflective things there's some like I can't we can't stop producing standard classics right right um, you, have to, you have to keep those in the in the repertoire right but we can't dial them in yes because then people will what? Oh, they'll be bored. And then you have to discount your prices, and then no one comes, um, and then you're done. And that seems, well, and it seems like a very um, self-defeating cycle that happens very rapidly. Like, once that spark right. is gone. Right. Oh, and this is another key insight to all this market <clears throat> research we've done. So, with all these various segments, and there's all these, you know, there's adventuresome people, and there's classic people, and there's Millennials and there's, well, there's all these segments. There's six market segments that we've identified, but there's one thing that unites them. One thing, which is, is they are looking for experiences that are new to them. Okay. Relative to their experience, they want a new experience. So, 
that's pretty profound when you think that our entire system, the subscription system, and, and certainly repertory houses, is about revivals. Well, if I want new experiences to me, what does that mean? So we don't revive anything. Ever. So every time we do it, every Carmen, we do Carmen. It's a different Carmen. Different production, different cast, because guess what? But that fundamentally challenges the entire system that we've built up over the last 30 years. Well, and from a from the standpoint of putting resources, you know, allocating resources, you're spending a lot of time and energy and, and money to on, on you know new productions every basically the entire season is comprised of new productions every year over and over. Yep. Well, not every <laughs> and they're all co- and they're all yeah. co-produced. Okay. Um, so um, and that allows us to um, do good work um, mm-hmm. and have other investors in, and they go elsewhere, and then other people can own them. We don't care. Um, and the other big thing is, is we only do three in the opera house now. We used to do five. Right. Um, now, in 2017, we will have 10 to 11 opera presentations in the season 2017 but three of them will be in the opera house but the amount that we can do and the interest and the dynamics that we can do in these other spaces for the price of one academy production is vast you know cold mountain we spent 2.4 million dollars on in the academy you know, um, and the other thing is, is that um, the younger generation's aesthetic understanding and sophistication is greater than their parents, um, because they've had access their entire life to um, visual and aesthetic um, uh, consumption. They right. have just the world is their oyster. It's all there on their iPad. It's all there on whatever, um, and so they have zero tolerance for something that is not done at the highest level possible. They won't buy a ticket where, oh, the cast was good. Oh, the cast was so good, but the production was just okay. They're not interested. They, excellence is no longer um, the the the, 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 top, the the pinnacle, the apex. Right. That's just the thought baseline <laughs> yep they have to be blown that's away that's a great way to think about they it they have to be blown away mm-hmm. like they have to have WTF moments all the time during the performance right so that question is like our formula system might not actually produce that kind of right. response how did um, you know going backward backwards a little bit as as um, I you know looked on YouTube to see some of the materials that you had put out um, you know the, the flash mob oh yeah Macy's, random acts of culture <laughs> now this was a, this was a long time ago this was in 2010 yeah right 2009 was the first one at Reading Terminal and in it, that it, helped so much oh my god and on the show notes uh, 
this video will be embedded, so just go to the podcast website and David's page, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. But um, to have how many performers? So 600, 650 singers um, in a um, pop-up takeover of Macy's on a Saturday afternoon um, uh, in November. Um, and they, we sang the Messiah. Um, we had uh, 34 choruses. Um, some professional, a lot of amateur, church, you name it. We couldn't even rehearse them in one room. They were so big. And it was all done to the organ because Macy's has the largest orchestral organ in the world. Right. Um, and we wanted our random acts of culture to be in iconic Philadelphia places because we wanted, we've talked a lot about, we want the opera, we want opera Philadelphia to be a part of the city, not above it. Um, which mm-hmm. is why we started doing these things. Um, and so that's done Reading Terminal. We've done so, and so, um, but the Macy's was um, huge. Reading Terminal was pretty great too. Um, but the, that was the big kahuna. It was like over twelve million views in one week. Um, and uh, it was, and we had to, and so the problem rehearsing it was we had to rehearse them with an organ. So we had, there's um, a, a second organ in Macy's um, in a room on the third or fifth floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we could fit 300 in that room. So we had them in, in spots. And then we had a very choreographed um, map of where everyone had to go so that there was always a professional chorus like every you know, I mean, forty feet, right. um, and they were dressed up like they were just like shoppers in regular clothes, and the organ started playing, and then it just all erupted. It was bananas and pandemonium. <laughs> I mean, the, the planning, the planning that must have gone in to that for that five minutes to occur, mm. and really never be, you know, it lives on now on YouTube, and yeah. it's been highly effective. Yeah. Um, uh, for for the it put a smile and well and it put us I mean it went, went global but I mean most importantly it put a smile on Philly's face which and is we, not easy and then <laughs> <you> think, <laughs> it's a tough place it really is yeah well yeah I love Philly I'm not from Philadelphia I'm a Canadian actually so this is my first time living in the U S even um, but, but I mean Philly the thing I love about Philly is there's, uh, I've never lived in a place that's more honest like you know where you stand with everybody. Um, That's true. Very and I true. love that. Yeah. I love that about this place. Um, and and so I think about Philly as being um, the apple, absolute um, sort of uh, intersection of sophistication and grit. Um, uh, you know, we, we have... Uh, opera House modeled after La Scala. We have mm-hmm. the great Philadelphia Orchestra. We've got the barns. There's sophistication. And there's this grit, yep. um, which makes it kind of fantastic. Yeah. Um, and our festival is about marrying that sophistication and grit artistically. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but uh, back to the random actor culture. That's, that's a really great encapsulation of what Philly is yeah, and I don't think a lot of native. I mean, I I grew up in the suburbs, like in Bucks County. So I've been Philly was always the anchor right. for my entire life. So um, I've never heard anyone articulate it in that way, though. Right. I mean, it's it's on one hand, uh, you know, there's world class. There's you know the Rodin Museum. It's and, all over the place. Uh, but then there's the Eagles there's, and yeah. and Joe Frazier the and the School of Business. I mean, look, there's all these like sophisticated. I think, but there's a grit, and in that grit is honesty. Yeah. 
Um, and so we, with, with Random Acts, we wanted to sort of get that. So we have this largest orchestral organ in the world in a department store. I mean, it's sophistication <laughs> of, and grit of, right there. Of course. Um, <laughs> and, and we didn't plan on 650. We knew we needed, we did sound tests, and we knew we needed at least 300 voices. So we did an open call for courses to sign up, and we ended up with 650. And we're like, oh, oh now what? Um, but it was magical for everybody. So switching gears a little bit, how does a finance major end up running an opera company in a huge city? Well, so I am, uh, I'm a Canadian, and I was uh, born and raised in Toronto, and um, I went to um, business school and did an undergraduate in finance, and um, one of my professors suggested I think about arts administration because I was um, a figure skater. Um, prior to going to university, and okay. I did a lot of dance as a result. So I did my so I was finance, but then I was running over to the dance department mm-hmm. um, when I wasn't doing finance. Um, and so I had an information interview at the Canadian Opera Company, and they hired me. I'd never seen opera. Um, I'd been a dance guy. I went to the first production. I was Umbalo and Mascara. It was a Boston edition, and I was ready to quit my job. I thought it was a boring, <laughs> horrible thing I'd ever seen. Um, and it was very park and barky. It was um, at a time when just that's maybe not everything was good. Um, but then we did things in rep, and, then, and I was literally going to quit my job. Um, and I was hired in the marketing department. And then I went to go see um, a new production of Madama Butterfly, Susan Benson designed, uh, Yoko uh, Watanabe was um, the pr- principal. And um, as a mess, I was like a puddle of tears, and it was just... I, never experienced anything like it and so then I went to the then general director Brian Dickey and said hey I like this opera stuff I have a proposal I will continue to be my marketing self and at this point like quickly within six months I was the director of marketing I was like running the marketing program at Canadian Opera right at some very ridiculously young age Um, and I said but can I be seconded to all the artistic departments over you know the next three years and I'll just keep working my 60, 70 hours as a director of marketing, and I'll just, you know, do do extra. And he said yes. And so I learned about the form in real time. Um, and this is not typically something you learn on the job, by the way. This no. is it's surprised. I mean, I thought you were going to say, you, you know, well, I was uh, I studied voice when I was younger, and it just was a natural. Progression. So you're coming into the art form from a complete sideways different <laughs> angle. Yeah, really. And um, and so I learned a couple of things um, along that way. I really um, had a very easy uh, grasp on direction, physical storytelling. I think if you think about it, with dance and skating, there's all that visual stuff, right? right so you know how right. things go together visually. Um, and then I also had a really good or have a really good ear without all the fancy training okay um uh so so um i was then um and then i i went to a smaller company and became like the head of all the administrative stuff and then at at still a young age i ended up um uh, running pacific opera victoria um and and i and that was a turnaround and i worked with an artistic director 
um, but functioned like the CEO. And I was there and turned that around. Um, I was there for eight years, and then I was recruited here um, from that experience. And all along the way, I've made sure that I've really um, created a robust artistic team. So I clearly have... You know, strategy and finance and all that business mm-hmm. acumen stuff. Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of artistic sensibilities, um, um, but I need help with some technical stuff. So um, I am the functioning artistic. We don't have an artistic director. You'll notice on there our, our sort of listing, but we have a music director and we have a artistic um, uh, team. Um, and we've brought people in. We have advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, staff and highly trained people. Um, and uh, and we work collectively at making sure we've got the right people and the right and the right thing. And so, yeah, I became an opera fan, um, and I decided to figure out a way to professionalize that fandom. Um, and I was blessed with some mentors. Um, uh, and, and, and Brian was just it has always been a big part of my career too um, you know uh, I was uh, I was here I came in as a managing director and it was I was going to become the general director and you know he he, came, he flew to Philadelphia um, and would counsel me in terms of you know making sure that I had the confidence to sort of be right. the artistic head of this institution because I don't uh, this is not how you're supposed to get to be a general director <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, it's by its nature, being the CEO, executive director, you know, whatever the top of the organization is, is a fairly, um, you really have no peer group in the organization. No. You're really on an island. So you need other people who have done the same job or a similar job in other cities or in other organizations that are comparable where you can go, okay, what do you know? And my great partners, partners, Carrado Rovars, our music director, who we're just like brothers now. I mean, so... (laughs) Um, And... but I am, but I, I am the artistic head, and it's interesting too that you know where we, we've been talking about sort of how did the company change, and I said it was about creating an artist environment, an artist ecology. It's about what we put on stage, mm-hmm. um, and so I believe in this modern age, you have to be the CEO and the artistic head of the organization because I don't know how those two things happen separately. Right. It seems like it's working just fine. So far. <laughs> but the thing is, is that we're not, you know, we're always on the move. I just always walk around and say, I don't want to become the Blackberry of, like, opera, where, you know, we came out with an innovation thing, and then we we stopped, and we still had the keyboard, and no one wanted a keyboard anymore, and people were moving. So right. um, the whole thing about us is we've had a lot of success, um, and we are enjoying a moment. We just have to be realistic about that. But we can't stay here for 30 seconds um, right. we need to um, again be progressive and I don't want us to be overly reflective on our successes I want us to reflect on them to only understand what we got there but I don't want our future to look like the past right um, because yeah. it's the way just to do cut. it just keep, <laughs> just keep innovating I mean and the minute you the minute you stop, the minute you stop, and that momentum goes away very, very 
yep. quickly. And the reason why our board's given us mandates for surpluses every year is because they know that we will fail. We can't continue, we can't be innovating and have everything successful. There will be some failures along the way. Right. And so they want to make sure responsibly we've got a safety net for it. And that's what board reserves are for. Yep. Makes sense. It has been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for for uh, sitting with me today. And well, I'm hardly enthusiastic about our work, yeah, as you, you can know, tell. You so really, it was just a real hardship. Yeah, it seems like you really hate your uh, you hate your job. No, uh, and well, the thing too is before we go is one thing I find in leaders of very forward looking organizations is you can't. There's no separation. Your life is your work. Yeah. It's all the same thing. Yeah. And you're on, and this is not not in a bad way, but you're think, I can tell you're thinking about this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of, that's a key insight that you just mentioned, too, because it's not like we're so concerned about being professional. Of course, we have to be professional. Sure. But we can't sort of be corporate in the sense that, do you know what I mean? It's kind of just a job. Um, so we have to let our personhood exist exactly. in this yes. and, and, and own that and not apologize for it. Um, and you, you, the minute that you sort of give yourself permission to do that is where you can unlock um, hopefully some the good parts of your person. I think. <laughs> <laughs> David, thanks again. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or to book Brian for public speaking engagements or personal coaching sessions, send an email to brian at creativeconfidential.net. That's B-R-Y-A-N at creativeconfidential.net. To get future episodes automatically, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com. Dot com. Dot com.